Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. If you are a fraud fighter and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're wondering if it's just your company that's experiencing so many more account takeover attempts, payment fraud attempts, abuse and you know, whether that's refund abuse, loyalty abuse, promo code abuse, et cetera, all of those attempts, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not alone. I, I think that that is in the air and it is consistent with a lot of people I'm talking to. I will provide more of a deep dive on that either next week or the week after, because I want to be able to provide some insights and, and get a few follow-ups from some people to have a few more anecdotes about that before I really dive into it, but just wanted to give a little validation. That's one of the reasons why I created this podcast is just so fraud fighters don't feel alone. And so if there is something that's impacting a large group of you, I want to tell you about it. I know for me, when I was on the front lines, it was somewhat comforting, right? That I wasn't, I wasn't suffering alone or that I wasn't, you know, that it wasn't just happening to me, just kind of having that assurance. There are definitely some companies that are being impacted more than others right now. And I do think that some of it is because of what I spoke about with Robert Villanueva from Q6 on last week's episode, as far as how Russian sanctions are impacting increased cyber financial fraud attempts. So if you have not listened to that episode, I highly recommend it, especially if you are experiencing a lot more account takeovers that might look like it's pretty close to the real user accessing that account. You're definitely going to want to check out that interview. Also, don't forget to check out Frank McKenna's interview or my interview with Frank McKenna, who is the author of the Frank on Fraud blog and also is a co-founder of the company Point Predictive. They recently released a really interesting auto fraud lending survey, which I know that the majority of fraud fighters that listen to this podcast are not in that area, but there's a lot of takeaways from that survey as well as from our conversation that I really think almost anyone can learn from. So especially on new account fraud and synthetic fraud, identity fraud, first party fraud methods, especially in consumer lending. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. So on today's episode, I'm going to provide a little bit of a follow-up from uh, what I talked about on last week's solo episode regarding NS8. If you didn't catch that, the CEO of NS8 pled guilty to wire fraud and securities fraud last week and is facing up to 20 years in prison. After I posted that podcast episode and wrote about it on LinkedIn, I received several different messages that I'm just going to provide a little bit of a follow-up for you guys on because I know that several of you are following this and interested in it, as frustrating and maddening as it is. 
And then the main topic I want to dive into today is something that I referenced a couple of weeks ago, and a few of you have reminded me that this is something I was going to provide kind of an overview or a deep dive on, and that is BNPL fraud considerations. By now, pay later is becoming very large in e-commerce or has been for the last couple of years. And there's some unique fraud considerations that merchants and also BNPL fraud providers should be thinking about. I did a webinar with Ronald Preach at, probably saying your last name wrong, I'm so sorry, Ronald, at About Fraud last week on Buy Now Pay Later Fraud. It was really fascinating and there were some great questions asked. And so that, in addition to several emails and conversations I've had about Buy Now Pay Later Fraud, I have curated them into about four pages of notes and I'm going to try to give you guys as as much of a detailed overview as I can just some things to think about and issues that that merchants as well as BNPL providers are facing right now. So with that, after recording last week's episode, you know, I provided an update on Adam Rogas, the former CEO of the former fraud prevention company, and I put that in quotation marks, NS8. He, as I just mentioned, he pled guilty to wire fraud and securities fraud and after I I did that episode, but before I posted it, I was talking with someone that I really respect and admire in this space, and they suggested that I consider interviewing Mr. Rogus. And I gave it some thought, and I had some reservations. One, I reading through that article, I couldn't help but question the validity of his remorse and humility in that article. It it just felt kind of feigned to me, but. I couldn't, for lack of a better term, hang my hat on anything. It was just this weird gut feeling. As a fraud fighter for over 15 years, I have learned to trust that gut. However, sometimes it's nice to have something else, right? Because I'm like, well, maybe he really is legitimate. I don't know. I don't know the guy. So when I posted on LinkedIn about that episode, I also asked my network, what do you think about me interviewing him? Do you think I should? And one person commented that they, you know, thought that would be really interesting. And I've heard from a few other people who said they would definitely listen to that. But then I started receiving a few messages from former employer, uh, former employees asking me not to. And it's clear that many of them are still dealing with the aftermath and trauma of the experience, not only in how the company ended, but honestly, in how it was run, quote unquote. Just the anecdotes I've received so far, I mean, it sounds beyond dysfunctional and pretty traumatizing. I mean, work PTSD is a real thing. It's something that, you know, I never want to minimalize or trivialize PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Well, it's PTSS now, post-traumatic stress syndrome. But I do think, and, and I've certainly had my share of toxic work environments and do know that it can take significant amounts of therapy to get through it. So I have nothing but empathy for the people who survived working in that. Some of them moved to Las Vegas for their dream job at NS8. Uh, and that doesn't get covered in the article, the very few articles that have been written about this. I also received a call from someone I know pretty well who told me a really crazy story about a recent interaction they had with Adam Rogus that completely conflicted with his narrative in the recent Forbes interview. I promised my source slash friend that I wouldn't provide details. That's their story to tell, but it definitely conflicted with what 
was in the article as far as, you know, saying that they'll be repent, he'll be repenting for years and he doesn't know how he can make up for it. The things that he's up to or talking about or working with people on just very much conflict with that. So ultimately, all those things together just help me solidify that at this time, I don't want to give a give legitimacy or a platform to someone who has caused so much harm and whose actions don't seem to align with their narrative. So that is where I stand on that topic. I do think that this story deserves to be covered much more. I know that the venture capital firms that invested in NS8 would really like for this to go away. But I think that beyond the entertainment value and the irony throughout this story, there's a lot of lessons to be learned around the technology industry, the VC capital industry, just how simple it seemed to falsify bank statements and receive, I think it was $154 million in investments. And that was, I mean, there really was no product. <laughs> I've confirmed with one of the former employees that it really was just an additional plugin to Shopify. They hadn't had anything for big commerce or any other platform yet. They didn't have anything for enterprise merchants, despite several. I almost think that they said they had over 100 salespeople who had never had any experience in this industry, just dialing for dollars like crazy. And some of the specific stories and accounts from merchants who did end up talking to them were comical, but also infuriating and really a waste of time. If you were to add up all the dollars of, you know, how much those people's times cost at large e-commerce companies, that would also be a quite significant expense. All for trying to peddle wares that didn't exist. It, it really is similar to Theranos in e-commerce fraud prevention. And that's the irony, right? That headline kind of writes itself. So Anyway, I think this is to be continued, but I always like to try to, you know, keep up a dialogue with you guys on that. And I may have more, you know, info about trying to, you know, help the stories deserve to be told, but not in the format of the Fraudology podcast. So I'll, I'll keep you posted. It's just kind of early stages right now. And additionally, if you did work with or had interactions with NS8 and you'd like to share them, let me know. I'm going to have to have like a specific folder for it in my inbox, I think, just based on how the amount of messages and the length of messages I received over the weekend. But I really appreciate those people that reached out. So thank you. That really helped help me solidify my decision uh, to continue to interview people who are on the fraud prevention side of things and who are fighting the good fight and uh, have humility and their words align with their actions. So that is what I'm going to continue to do. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. 
And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So on Tuesday's episode, Frank and I, Frank McKenna and I talked about, you know, the recent auto fraud survey published by his company Point Predictive. And one of the types of companies that we theorized, I'm saying, sorry, that's a hard word for me this afternoon, apparently, that may have been similar, may have similar fraud threats was by now pay later. And so that's really what I'm going to dive into. Like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I received several questions lately about BNPL fraud threats. Some of them from very interesting companies that I know that like the Wall Street Journal would be very fascinated to know about, but then, you know, I lose all credibility and that's just not worth it to me at all. Plus, I guess I already had that, that break of being in the Wall Street Journal without having to, you know, dime out any of my friends. So that's the way I try to stay. But I thought I'd provide an overview of what I've learned in several conversations, both with buy now, pay later providers and merchants who accept those payments. I know there are still several merchants who are considering accepting this payment method or, you know, haven't rolled it out yet. And so that's, but also even if you are rolling it out, maybe these are things you haven't thought of because a lot of people here know fraud chargeback liability and think, sweet, I don't have to deal with it and move on. And I hope that that's the case for you. But for the merchants who have been accepting buy now pay later payments for a while, that's not necessarily the case. So first I wanna acknowledge that the concept of buy now pay later isn't new. In Europe, they've had invoicing for years and the way it was explained to me by Ronald at About Fraud is that someone may buy eight pairs of shoes and then decide to return four. They would only be invoiced and have to pay for the four pairs of shoes that they kept. That sounds so nice and like an honor system that is amazing, but that would never work in the U.S. with how fraudy it is for so many reasons. And I am sure that there were their share of, you know, fraud on that as well. In Brazil, most everything is paid for in installments. So even if it's like, from what I understand, even if it's a gallon of milk, right, it's split up into six payments. I don't know how anyone does that accounting, but that is the way their payment system has been for forever. There are credit cards also tied into that in some ways, but for the most part, 
you know, if you're going to be accepting payments in Brazil, you have to accept the installment payment providers. And some U.S. websites and catalog companies, you know, direct to consumer, the ones that have had infomercials, they've all offered their own payment plan over the years. I mean, if you're in the U.S., you're probably thinking of, you know, only four payments of 1995. And that added its share of problems and fraud and, and people not paying and chargebacks and everything else. But those were offered by themselves. And I do know some merchants, I was talking to one last week, that used to offer a form of a buy now, pay later service in-house. And then once you know these well-known providers popped up, they decided that was a great opportunity for them to outsource that and not have to manage the entire process in-house. But recently, buy now, pay later as a universal payment method has started to become very popular. There's Afterpay, Affirm, Klarna, Zip. I know there's several others. That's more in the U.S. I feel bad. I should pull up the slide that we used for the webinar last week that mentioned other providers internationally. So I apologize because I am in the U.S. Sometimes I just default to talking about that. So, But if you're in Europe or Latin America or... Australia or APAC, Middle East, etc. Fill in the blank with the BNPL providers that you are aware of. <laughs> I would say the majority of enterprise merchants have already started accepting buy now, pay later payments. However, there are still several that are still considering it, or maybe they are accepting two or three, and they're having offers, you know, to be exclusive. Some of the reasons why e-commerce companies are adding them, you know, one is that there's more customer acquisition opportunities. I know of one uh, well-known department store that said that they have been able to really track that they've increased their customer base by a significant percentage amount just by accepting buy now, pay later. And they have also started accepting it in their stores as well, not just online. So it can be a really good way to increase business, especially with the Gen Z generation. I don't know the exact birth years of Gen Z, but like people in their mid early 20s and younger, I think my almost 18 year old is considered that. Uh, a lot of them saw firsthand, you know, what happened with the credit crisis. So they'd rather not have a credit card, but they can get their heads around four payments for something with no interest. So that's why they're attracted to it. So it's it's not like this is just a, a payment method for fraudsters. Like there's a lot of people, bad actors, I'm trying not to say the word fraudsters as much after, I think I mentioned that in several episodes ago, but you know, it's, this is something that's a good payment method. And that's something that's been wanted and needed in e-commerce for decades at this point. I still remember 10, 12 years ago going to conferences and the main subject was the wallet wars. Back then, Visa and MasterCard each had their own wallet. There was one sadly called Isis that had to change its name pretty quickly. Around that time, there were several different ones. And honestly, the one that prevailed was Apple Pay. And that came much later than a lot of the ones that were kind of first to market. Apple Pay and Google Pay are probably the winners. And that makes the most sense from a phone provider perspective. I know that Samsung Pay is out there and there's some others as well. For the most part, when the wallet wars were being discussed, a lot of comments were around, this will get us new customer acquisition. It was a similar issue that BNPL providers have where it's a chicken and egg thing where they need both retailers to accept it and customers to use it at the same time. So that can be a really complex problem. And I do think that 
the large BNPL providers, especially in the U.S., have done a good job of that for various reasons. So that kind of brings me to the fact that it's a really competitive market. And a lot of them are now vying for exclusivity on enterprise brands. You know, essentially, if you think about it, if you are a buy now pay later provider, you want to be exclusive with the biggest brands. That way the consumers will follow you and they'll say, oh, well, I want an account with that company over the other company I used before because they're with XYZ merchants. Also, a lot of them have their own sites where they curate, you know, links to all of the websites of the partners that they work with. And they, some of them claim that that's a really big source of customer traffic. I've kind of heard varying reports on that, but they can provide really big checks for marketing expenses. That happened a lot with the Wallet Wars too. That was the first time I learned that, that, you know, if you're a big brand, you can sometimes negotiate six, seven figure checks so that for marketing, which is an extra incentive to accept that payment brand. They also, and this one is a lot more common, a lot of them are offering fraud chargeback liability coverage, which means if you as a merchant accept, you know, have a buy now, pay later order, then if it comes back as fraud, because the buy now pay later provider in almost every sense is the merchant of record. I've heard rumblings that for smaller merchants, that's not the case, but I'm not 100% sure how that works. But for the most part, they're the merchant of record, which means they already are the ones receiving the chargeback. And they're probably receiving the chargeback on the installment, not the full amount. So if someone purchased something on your website for $1,000 through a buy now pay later provider and someone paid the first installment of $250 on a stolen credit card or put collateral down or however that works, then when a fraud chargeback is filed, it's going to be filed to the merchant of record, which would be the buy now pay later provider. So that's one of the reasons they are taking liability. It's just easier than having to pass that on. But also they're the ones making the decision. Do we issue credit to this person or not? So in that case, it, it does make sense that they would take on the fraud liability. One of the most common questions I receive about buy now, pay later is if they take chargeback liability, why do I need to care about fraud? So I'm going to answer that in a few different ways. The biggest thing I will say is read your contract carefully. In a lot of cases, I know that you're not the one, the people who are fighting fraud are not the ones who are selecting the payment method. It might be the payment department or the payments team, which you know may work closely with you. But a lot of times marketing or, you know, someone in operations or somewhere else, business development comes in and brings it in and doesn't necessarily always ask you, hey, what do you think? Should we accept this? Should we not? Usually it's a case of we're accepting this. We're going to start accepting this in like, you know, 24 seconds. I'm kidding. But more like, you know, in two weeks, four weeks max, if you're lucky, figure it out if there's any fraud. You know, that I'm very aware of how realistically uh, fraud fighting works within e-commerce. And so one of the things that you could do to demonstrate that you are looking out for your company, as well as to help cover your company for future losses, is read the contract carefully. I'm sure your legal department looked at it, but they're not looking at things from a fraud perspective and thinking about what the repercussions of those contracts are operationally. The biggest clause you want to look out for is if you as a merchant are required to provide order details within a 24-hour time period via a portal. 
a lot of times it's just put in a portal. And if you don't know that you need to log in and look at it, they're just going to rack up. And if you don't respond in 24 hours and it's that's in your contract, then you're liable for the chargeback. So that is something that is very important. It's also important to find out how they're passing on service related, related chargebacks. If there's a feedback loop on fraud chargebacks, so when they are receiving them, are you getting that to be able to put into your fraud system? But the biggest thing is this clause that you need to provide it and you somehow need to just magically know to look at this portal on a daily basis or obviously have one of your analysts do it and respond with order details. Otherwise, you're going to be liable and have a much larger bill at the end of the month than was expected. Unfortunately, a lesson that a few merchants have learned the hard way. Ronald at About Fraud reminded me, and he's so right, I think he and I could write like the history of fraud if we really, if we had extra time, we could be fraud historians, but that doesn't mean we're old. <laughs> I just spent the whole weekend with my daughter who was telling me how old I was, so that's top of mind. But it really, it reminded him, and he's so right, of the old PayPal days. That was very similar to what PayPal required back in the day. And it is important for them to receive order details. I get that, but that's kind of a sneaky thing added in contracts that you should keep an eye out on. How do their policies relate to digital goods and digital delivery of items that if you provide digital items, you need to think about that and read through that. Travel, event ticketing, etc. There's a lot of nuance there and limited product and timing is quick and everything else that all BNPL providers have really thought that through as far as when it comes to fraud and risk. So that's something that you should be aware of. And then the biggest fraud threat that uh, merchants have reported is what I'm referring to. I, I did an, an episode about this like months ago, and I think I called it is I think the title of the episode was is BNPL a side door for fraud? And I felt kind of bad because a couple of really great leaders at BNPL providers quickly listened to it. They were worried that I was calling them out. I was not. This actually doesn't really have anything to do with them. I mean, I guess kind of, but not really. But really the best practices, you know, oh, I'm sorry. So I'm skipping ahead here. So what I mean by Trojan horse fraud is that what's happening, and I'll just kind of say it in like anecdotal way. If a bad actor is unable to commit fraud through your website because you're using a really good fraud provider and it can usually identify them and block their orders. They're learning that they can go through a buy now pay later provider and get a provisional credit of, you know, a relatively small amount. Maybe it's $500, $300 for a new account. And then they're able to place an order on your site. Now they have an account on your site with a good order that went through. So now they can update their credit card to a stolen one. And often they're making high dollar purchases in this method. It's $5,000, it's $10,000, it's $15,000 on stolen cards. Then they're able to go through, it's authorized and sent because oftentimes fraud systems put a significant amount of weight on previous good orders. And we've seen that be a problem with what I referred to as whitelisting fraud a long time ago, which was really targeting just a couple specific payment or fraud providers that were heavily waiting previous good orders when it's still within the chargeback window. And so they were using it with other merchants and saying, okay, so, you know, I bought a pair of socks at this merchant. And so now I have a good record within that fraud provider system. So I'm just going to go over here and make the large purchase at another merchant that uses the same fraud provider. That was more a big deal two years ago, but I'm sure it's still happening. There's just not as many merchants using that fraud provider as there used to be. So 
I don't hear about it as much, but this is very similar where they're basically leveraging the fact that most merchants, when they don't have the fraud chargeback liability, they will not run the transaction through their fraud system because why do they need to pay for it if they have that covered? However, that's the loophole. So the best practice here and how to prevent this is to run all of your orders agnostic of payment methods through your fraud provider. Obviously, you want to also ensure that you have a very good fraud provider. Not all of them are created equal. I feel like I, all the time I probably say it in my sleep, but it's very true. And as technology continues to advance, not all providers are. And then on the flip side, as we've learned with NS8, not all companies that claim to do something are doing it. So it's unfortunately kind of a landmine, but talking with your other, with your merchant peers, working with a consultant that's not meant as a plug, it's just the truth, like somebody that understands this landscape, all those things can really help you dodge that bullet. But if you're, the other thing is, is if your uh, fraud provider does have positive attributes for previous good orders, work with them to remove that at least on buy now pay later transactions. But I think really the best thing to do is run them through your fraud provider. The merchants that had this issue and reported it to me first about six months ago, uh, when they started running all transactions through their fraud provider, they caught almost every single one. So uh, you can't rely on the buy now, pay later provider to catch everything. On that note, not all buy now, pay later providers have exceptional payment fraud detection. I'm not naming names on this podcast episode, but it's similar to what I just said about payment fraud providers, like every company has a different system and process and these companies have grown so quickly. I mean, if you're looking at job postings right now, you've probably seen 87 for several different, you know, by now pay later providers just in the last hour. I'm making up a number and I'm over exaggerating, but that's because they, they can't hire fast enough to keep up with just the volume. And so I'm not meaning to drag anyone. It's just that they're not all the same. In fact, some of them have reached out to me. Some of them are reaching out to the merchants they work with, the merchants that do a good job at fraud providing and asking them for basically free consulting advice uh, on how to identify fraud, which as a consultant, I'm like, I'm right here. You know, I understand when you ask one of your clients, you aren't given an invoice, but that's also, you know, exploiting your clients. So I have an issue with that, but that's a whole other podcast, especially if your company has limited stock of popular items. So maybe your company sells brand name items, luxury goods, event ticketing, travel, things where there's limited stock of the item, or it's a brand name and you don't want that out on resellers, you know, being resold on third party marketplaces or other places. You'll want, even if you don't technically have chargeback liability, you may want to review the buy now pay later providers for fraud to keep products out of the resale market. So that's something that a few companies have had issues with that their buy now pay later provider is just letting through fraud that their fraud team is like, wait a second, like our system would have caught this in five seconds. So that's just another reason why you should at the very least run it through your own fraud provider. I understand that that can increase your rates, but honestly, I mean, if it makes your volume go up higher, maybe you can renegotiate for lesser rates per transaction. So, I mean, really depending on how high that volume is through buy now, pay later, but I'm sure that almost anyone who's in sales or account management for a fraud provider 
uh, that's listening to this right now is writing this down as a point to talk to their merchants about next time. And it's for the greater good. So <laughs> I'm fine with it. It really is important. You just can't rely on another provider to understand the type of fraud that your specific business has and to be able to catch it. So whether they have the fraud chargeback liability or not, it still is up to you to protect your brand, to protect your products, to protect your customers. Uh, and so that's why I mentioned all these things. One more thing I'm going to mention that's kind of related, but it's more a payments thing, but I think it's important to mention this came up on one of my collaboration calls with one of the verticals that I work with. MasterCard specifically is going to start offering by now pay later, of course, right? They want to stay competitive, but it'll be going through their credit card rails. And from what I understand, uh, and this came from a merchant who talked with them specifically. So that's my source. I haven't been able to find this in writing. So that, but that doesn't always mean anything because of methods that MasterCard and Visa use to communicate to merchants. It's not directly, it's often sending it to their payment processor and then assuming that their payment processor is going to pass it on to them. So it's not surprising I didn't find it in writing, but I'm just saying that with a caveat, make sure that you talk to your payment processor about this and verify it. But from what I understand, even though you as a merchant won't necessarily be able to know which transaction is a MasterCard buy now pay later and which one is a MasterCard credit card, it'll probably come on a different bin, but it'll, so it'll go through the rails the same, but to the customer, it's more of a buy now pay later in structured installments versus on a credit card receiving interest after the first month. Even though you as a merchant don't get to know, oh, this is a buy now pay later, this is a credit card, for all MasterCard BNPL transactions, there will be a 1.3% additional fee on top of interchange, and that will be assessed via your payment processor. I do know from this merchant that for enterprise merchants, you know, big brands, which I know most of my listeners are in that category, you can work with your payment processor to opt out and say, we don't want to take those transactions. Now, there's a possibility that that would mean less customers. I don't know the numbers as far as adoption rate or even if it's fully out in the wild yet, but I do know that the transaction fees will be significantly more. So that's something that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned. So I was going to continue and talk about buy now pay later providers and you know what some of their issues are but honestly I have already talked your ear off for 35 minutes and I want to be respectful of everyone's time so I will dive into that another week it was most important to me to really dive into the considerations for merchants because I know that that's the majority of you listening to this are the ones who are considering it I think in some ways talking about the issues that by now pay later providers are having is kind of like preaching to the converted. However, I also know that it's something that's interesting to all of us and possibly you're considering to apply for one of those positions at a buy now pay later provider, or maybe you work for a fraud provider who thinks that your solution might work for them, but you're not sure. So I will dive into that later. I'm not sure if it'll be next week or not, uh, just because I had something else on the horizon timely, especially, I mean, I talked about at the beginning with fraud just going up so high. I'm not sure if that's where I'm going to go. I mean, if you really want to hear about the risks for BNPL providers, please let me know. That would help me prioritize it more. 
But with that, I'm going to let you go for today. But I, as always, I appreciate you listening to this podcast and your support and your positive messages and comments. They really make my day. And I will look forward to speaking with you next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.